Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. So we are in a series on unity, and uh, I'm ringing just a little bit up here today, so I don't know if I need to adjust this. Maybe it's my fault. Down. Kind of in the high end there. Um, There we go. That's better. We've been on the series in unity, and we're going through the book of Ephesians, and we, we got talking about last week a new way of living. And Paul said, if you remember, don't live like the world any longer. If you're going to be in the church, if you're going to choose Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're going to be part of the body of Christ, Paul says this to you, don't live like the world any longer. Because you're not supposed to live like they live. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And you get to live for him. That's what he says to us. And he says the world, they're hopelessly confused. Their minds are darkened and they live for fleshly pleasures. That's not what we're supposed to do. You are a part of the body of Christ. You are a new creation. We've been given this new life. And with that, we are given guidelines for our new way of living. And I made the point last week, when those within the church all decide to live according to the standard laid out in Scripture, and when the argument stops over what parts of the Bible we're going to follow and which parts we're, going, we're not going to follow as the body of Christ, because that's not an argument that should ever even happen, right? The Word of God says it, we believe it, we come underneath of it, we submit to it. The Word of God is there, it's truth, it's absolute truth, it's inspired by God, and as believers and followers and disciples of Christ, we come underneath the authority of the Word of God and we let it rule our lives. Plain and simple. We don't get to pick and choose like it's some kind of spiritual buffet, like I'll take a little bit of this, I'll take a little bit of that. Oh, I don't like that, so I'll leave that not the way it works, folks. You take it all or you don't take any of it. That's the truth. That's just the truth. A beautiful unity can occur within the church when we all follow the same book. Why is there so much disunity in the church? Because we have opinions about what we want to follow and what we don't. A unity that will draw those outside of the body of Christ. That's the kind of unity that will occur when we all follow the same word of God, the same book, the same message. We all submit to the same thing. It'll draw those outside the body of Christ into a real personal relationship with him. And I think that's so important. And the the verse I keep going back to, it's one of my life verses. You guys all have life verses too, and you've heard me preach this a hundred times probably. But Psalms 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. When God's people dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountain of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And as active kingdom builders, we can be sure that we will have the anointing because that's what the oil being poured over Aaron's head is significant of. We will have the anointing and, and, and we'll also have a harvest of fruit when we dwell together in unity. 
The, the, the dew at Mount Hermon produces tons of fruit agriculturally. So we can have the, the anointing and we can have fruit, and that's what we want as believers, right? That's what we want as kingdom builders. All of us living together with the Bible as our source, the whole thing, not just the parts that are com we're comfortable with, all of it. How many know the Bible can make you feel uncomfortable sometimes? Well, get over it and follow it anyway, right? It's not meant to be warm and fuzzy. I pray we become a church like Psalm 133 is talking about, where we dwell together in unity like God's people in such a way that the Lord commands the blessing here. I love that. And living according to his word, according to his standard, that's our new way of living as members of his body. And let's remember that this is a letter in Ephesians written to believers. Paul was writing to those in the church at Ephesus. Look at what he says next in Ephesians 4, 25 through 29, picking up where we left off last week. He says, so stop telling lies. Who's he talking to? Believers, right? It's letters to the believers. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, quit it. He says, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And sometimes when we read scriptures like this, we think, oh, that's for the world because we're, we're Christians now. We don't do any of those things. No, this is written to the church. To the church. So let's break it down a little bit in reference to striving for and keeping the unity of the body of Christ. Number one, stop lying is what he said, right? Turn to your neighbor and say, stop lying. <laughs> so again, Paul, I keep saying it, he's talking to believers here, he's talking to us, and I want to move beyond the normal fib-telling that we sort of envision when we talk about lying, right? I mean, I know that there are those who struggle with telling blatant falsehoods and outright lies, but I think they're probably far and few between in the church. I don't think there's people just like, I'm gonna just lie because I can get away with it. There's a few. And I don't know that line gets real blurry if they are really in the church or not, right? I think most lying in the church comes in the form of those subtle half-truths that we find ourselves speaking or the exaggerations of the truth that we tell about ourselves and our situations in order to impress others. Like, I caught a fish this big, but it, when I say it, it's this big. Those little exaggerations, and that might not be a horrible, horrible, sinful thing, but it's a lie. It's a lie. You know, I was thinking about this, how many times, and, and you know, when, when, when God begins to impress scriptures on me to preach, they have to, they're always preached to me first by him. You know how that, I don't know if you know how that feels, but you get to hear it all at once. I have to hear it by myself, and I just get hammered by it sometimes. I mean, wow. I mean, every preacher who tells a good story could be accused of evangelistically speaking, right? Stretching the truth just a little bit to make it sound a little better, and I was a little convicted by that. I hope you understand that Paul here says, 
quit lying, and that would fall under that category of lying, not being truthful, just, just trying to pump things up. We all do it. To impress others, to hold someone's attention. And, or maybe some of the lies occur as we try to manipulate others to do or think what we want them to do or think. Like a control mechanism we use to act as a puppeteer over others. We control situations and circumstances and peoples and, and neighbors and other families by just telling little lies. And we can get this person over here to not like this person over here by something subtle, not a blatant lie, but something just kind of subtle that'll make them go down the road of thinking something that's not true. And you do it on purpose. People do that in the church all the time. I've seen it. And I don't even know if they know they're doing it. God convict us of that if we're a part of those things. Because don't we want to be people of truth? Where truth just reigns within us and we're not playing those little games of half-truths and little manipulative lies to get what we want and to, and to position uh, uh, and posture ourselves in a way where it's beneficial for us and how people view us or maybe that's part of one, us wanting a power position or something like that or just what people think of us. It, it, it's so subtle sometimes, and it can be so hard to even recognize in our own hearts. But God, reveal it to us, please, because we want to be people of truth. You know, I think it can happen so innocently, we don't even know we're doing it. It's not, again, blatant, blatantly speaking falsehoods. It's just massaging our words in order to get what we want. There are some people that are really good at that, by the way. I call them politicians. <laughs> and these kinds of lies kill unity in the church. Ultimately, they cause hurt feelings. They encourage gossip. They destroy relationships. Sometimes they destroy relationships even before they start. I mean, if you're someone... I'm just throwing out an example. If you're someone in the church and someone new comes in and you meet them and you, you go out to a life group summer edition with them and you get to know them and it's like, oh, I love this couple, and then you start warning them about everybody else in the church, you could have destroyed a relationship that was very important that God was trying to set up because you wanted them all for yourself. That's sick. And again, sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. Talking about lying. So here's a truth for you right from Jesus. And he was talking to a group of his followers, some of them very proud of their Jewish heritage as God's chosen people. But he said in John 8, and I'm going to read out of the Amplified Bible because I think it just perfectly depicts this. He says, you guys, you, you, you followers that, that are so proud of your Jewish heritage, you are of your father, the devil. I mean, that's pretty harsh words coming from Jesus. They're following him around, listening to him, and he goes, you're of your father, the devil. And it is your will to practice the desires which are characteristic of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks what is natural to him, for he is a liar and the father of lies 
and half-truths. I really don't think that there's very many people who consciously in the church go, I'm going to lie and get what I want. I think they do it without knowing it. And the devil gets a little foothold in there, and he gets them to say things in a certain way that's a half-truth or a partial truth, and then they all of a sudden find themselves manipulating and massaging words, and they're acting like what Jesus said, their father, the father of lies. I don't know about you, but that just smacks me right across the face. And I don't think I'm a liar. Every one of us can look in our heart and say, yeah, there's moments I've done that. Situations that come up, and what do you do? You gather all the people around you that will tell you what you want to hear so that you can tell them things, and then you feel better. Rather than finding people who tell you the truth. Kind of lying to yourself in that situation. Jesus says that those who engage in these kinds of deceitful lies have a father that's different than his father. Liars are children of the devil, whether they know it or not, whether they know they're lying or not. That, that's who they are. That's harsh. Oh, it's just a little white lie. That's, come on, Pastor Barry, you're, 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 you're being a little too rough on this. I, I didn't say it, Jesus did. In the book of Revelation, which is the revelation of Christ given to John, Jesus said, all liars will have their place in the lake of fire. The next time you're dealing with your child, we're talking about baby dedication, right? You're supposed to raise them up in the way they should go. The next time you deal with your child um, and, and you know they're not telling you the truth, you might want to say, hey, Scripture says, Jesus said, all liars have their place in the lake of fire. It's the truth. Where do liars go? Not Washington. Okay, maybe they do. But all liars have their place in the lake of fire. That's what Jesus said. That was his revelation given to John. You know, and I, I was thinking about that. It's like, man, that's, that, that's harsh. But let's be honest about this. How can you identify with Christ, who is the source of all truth and the complete embodiment of truth itself, and be a person who isn't truthful? It's like an oxymoron. If Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the light, if the truth lives in you, if it does, then how can you lie on a regular basis? I mean, I know we all mess up. We ask forgiveness, and he's faithful and just to forgive us. I get that. But to live in our sin, to stay there and just be a liar, unaware and unobservant and, and not even care. Like, I'm just going to live that way. I'm going to do that because that's who I am. I'm not even going to let God tell me that I'm being that way. You know, we close off to those things, don't we, sometimes? Are you hearing me this morning? To live in that sin, that's completely different. Something is off when your life lines up with the father of lies more than it lines up with the author of truth. Ooh, write that down. Something is off when your life lines up more with the father of lies than it does with the author of all truth. And I say this all the time, and I'm going to keep saying it, there's no grace without repentance. I mean, grace isn't a license to sin however we want. It's a gift that should be cherished, and although it's never earned, repentance is key to receiving it. 
And here's the thing. You can say, well, I, yeah, I tell a few lies. It's no big deal. God, God knows me. He, he understands me. I, he, he gets me. and he, 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 I, I can do what I want. So if lying or being untruthful is a constant issue for you, grace is not something that should be trampled upon. You need to repent. There's forgiveness and there's freedom, folks. You don't have to live like that. You know, that's, confusing. that's a confusing way to live. Like, who can keep all, all those little half-truths all, you know, organized so that, ooh, good. I've met people like that who can't, and they get caught in them eventually. The Bible does say your sin will find you out. He says, stop lying, and he's talking to the church. Then he says, stop being controlled by anger. Man, this was a hard scripture for me this week. And you guys know, I've been very transparent that I was born angry. And if you don't believe me, my mom's here today and she could tell you that that's probably true. Amen? Amen. She said amen and nod her head. I don't know why. I, I had a great home. I, I did. I just, I, red hair, Irish blood, German stubbornness. I don't know. She's kind of born mad. And I'm not angry anymore. I'm happy. I love you. I'm nice. I'm not saying that to like manipulate you to not ever approach me. Go, he's angry. You know, I'm not saying that, okay? Not doing that. But I, I need to tell you this anger itself is not sin. The Bible tells us that God is even angry at times. Anger is an emotion, and like all emotions, we must allow the Spirit of God to help us control them. Some of us, it seems, are hardwired with this explosive, short-fuse anger thing. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say short-fuse, explosive anger, because you deal with it on a daily basis. The King James Version of the Bible interprets verse 26 in Ephesians chapter 4 as a, it says this, Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. We, we've memorized that scripture, some of us have. Talking about uncontrolled fits of rage. When you say things you don't want to say, and you throw things that you shouldn't be throwing, or you punch things that you don't need to be punching, that's a fit of rage. It's out of control. I remember one time I got so mad. I don't even know what it was about. You know, it, for those of you that struggle with anger sometimes, uh, you know, when it's all over, you don't even know what you're mad about to begin with, do you? Sometimes that's the case. But I was so mad. I was a young kid. I had my, I had bought my um, uh, car, and I loved my car because I worked hard on it, and I worked for it and all that. And I remember something ticked me off, and I was, in, I was in the car sitting at the steering wheel, and I just unloaded with a fit of rage, and I punched the windshield. <laughs> Completely shattered it across. It didn't blow out or anything. It wasn't, wasn't that good of a puncher but I broke the whole thing, right? Cost me 300 bucks. <laughs> I told my dad, he goes, what happened to your window? I said, I hit, a rock hit it. Well, I lied. <laughs> he says, funny looking rock. <laughs> he knew, he knew. That's an expensive little fit of rage, isn't it? for a teenager 30 years ago or more. That was expensive. 
These outbursts, they'll ruin your life. They wreck your relationships and create distrust in others towards you. When your anger is out of control, you become unpredictable. I think that type of behavior can even be a manipulation mechanism for people. If I'm unpredictable because of my out-of-control anger to the people I'm supposed to be unified with, then they will have to walk on eggshells around me. Then I can use it to control them. I can get what I want because I know they will cave to my will to avoid having to deal with my possible hissy fit. And this may be happening even without the individual knowing they're doing it. I think that's often the case. I don't think people sit around and go, mm, I'm going I'm to have a few fits of rage and I'll really, I'll really control them with that. Nobody does that, but that's essentially what happens over time. Church, what a rotten thing to do to someone else within the body of Christ. To manipulate them, whether you know it or not, to manipulate them with your potential fit of rage. let alone a spouse or one of your kids. How can unity flourish when members of the body of Christ engage in controlling others with out-of-control anger? There's something very beautiful about an individual who remains in control when an emotional storm of anger is warranted. And I, I just gotta tell you this. Back in my early married days, I would have some of these like little hissy fits. I don't like admitting that in front of you all. Are you okay if I'm transparent? Y'all have them too, so don't. <laughs> but my wife didn't struggle with that so much. And she didn't push my buttons to create them, but sometimes she'd kind of giggle, which pushed my button a little bit. And she would look at me and she'd go, are you for real right now acting like that? And I realized I'm being infantile in my ability to control my emotions. I think that probably started me, how many are thankful for your spouse to point out your issues, right? That, that's a wonderful thing to have in a spouse. Not that they're always pointing them all out because they gotta be willing to have a few pointed at them too. I'll talk about her in a minute the other way. But you know what I'm saying? That's good, that's healthy, that's wonderful to be able to have those kind of conversations because I'm telling you, that helped me immensely. I was like, I love this woman. I, I respect her, I think she's wonderful. And she's laughing at me because I'm acting like a child. <laughs> That'll change you, you know? Yeah. Something beautiful about someone who can just remain calm. And that's not the only kind of anger, by the way, these outbursts, these out-of-control fits of rage. Some struggle with that explosive, fly-off-the-handle type anger like I'm talking about. Others are not in control of the anger that just brews in them for days and months and even years. It's a slow anger that slowly drives you to hate and despise one another. And it can start with unforgiveness and just brew into bitter, bitter anger towards that person. That, and, and it just eats your spirit like a gangrene infection from within. There's a lot of that in the church, too. 
It's so elusive because it's not explosive. I mean, it's easy to point out the explosive anger and say, grow up. That's wrong. It's a little tougher to point out that thing that just churns way deep down in your belly and it's rotting you from the inside out. Because nobody sees it, but it's there. Make no mistake, an anger that you allow to sit like that within you, that's still an uncontrolled anger. And Paul reminds us to not let the sun go down on our wrath. This is to say, get rid of that anger as quickly as you can. Do what you must. Pray it out. Exercise it out if you have to. Talk it out with another person who you are not angry at, someone who will speak truth to you and talk you off the the, the ledge, so to speak. Listen to worship music if you have to. I mean, just listen. Just sit there, say nothing, and listen to worship music until it subsides, whether it's the storm or the, the thing way deep down inside. William Congreve said in this famous quotation, music hath charms to soothe the savage beast, to soften rocks or bend the knotted oak. I think that's so true, especially worship music, which brings the peace of God. Whatever you do, don't sit on that anger throughout the night. Don't go to bed mad. Make the phone call. Do something to make sure that you don't give the enemy this foothold into your life. Sleeping with that kind of rage will only hurt you. It doesn't do anything to the one you're angry with. You may have every right to be angry, and I have to say that. You might have every right in the world to be angry. That's fine. Be angry. Just don't let that anger become sin by letting it get out of control. That will destroy unity in the body of Christ so quickly. So quit lying. Stop being controlled by anger. What does Paul say next? Quit stealing. He's talking to the church. I didn't think the church was full of a bunch of thieves. Stealing is just taking that which isn't yours. There is a disorder called kleptomania, and it's a mental health disorder that involves repeatedly being unable to resist urges to steal items that you generally don't even need. Often the items stolen have little value and you could afford to buy them. There are thieves maybe with this disorder within the body of Christ that are trying to work it out. Some who may even suffer from that disorder, which doesn't give them the excuse, by the way, to steal. But I believe more times than not, the stealing that occurs in the lives of Christians occurs within our business dealings and can even come in the form of always enjoying the privileges of being a part of his church without ever feeling the need to do your part. Stealing isn't always financial. It's always not material, right? You can steal others' joy, for instance. You may be a thief and always needing and receiving ministry from others, but never ministering to others yourself. Are you hearing me? I want you to listen to this because this is hard for me to verbalize without sounding mean. And so I apologize if you're hearing this wrong. I want you to hear it right and hear my heart here. I'm not by any means trying to shame anyone who needs a hand up because there's people in the church, basically all of us, who from time to time need a hand up. Amen? We all need that. We all need assistance from others at times. 
Don't be too proud to receive that assistance. I don't want that to become a thing. Well, I don't want to be a thief, so I'm not going to receive anything. No, I'm not saying that. Don't, don't go that far with something, all right? Be it, be it financial need or, or, or just encouragement even. What I'm saying is that those who take and take and take without ever feeling the need to give in return, that could fall under the definition of taking advantage of or even stealing. And this is, again, sensitive because most often people are already feeling a sense of shame in receiving help from others. I'm not talking about the kinds of people who just all of a sudden find themselves in need. We all have times like that, like I said. I'm narrowing this down to those that are always in need because of their own choices. Oh, that's a hard thing to preach because it steps on toes. I'm not apologizing for it. Should we give money to someone who can't pay their cell phone bill? And we've been asked, due to a gambling problem they have? Maybe the conversation happens and there's a real desire to stop gambling and even efforts made to quit, and so the help is given, and that's okay. But then they keep doing the same thing, losing all their money at the casino and keep asking for help to pay their cell phone bill and other bills. When does your helping them become enabling them to live in their sin? When does that person become someone in need because of a situation or a circumstance that they have? And when does it become stealing? I don't know if I can define that perfectly. I'm just saying there are people in the church who do that and they steal. They're thieves. And I'm not just saying this church. I'm talking the whole church, right? There's people that do that. Doesn't mean everybody doesn't have needs sometimes and they should be met by people in the church. I think that's great. Those who find themselves in need because of life situations and circumstances shouldn't feel ashamed for receiving some help. But there are those who refuse to take any responsibility for their own life choices that create those situations that put them in a position to always be in need. You know, if you pastor a place long enough, you see trends with people. You see people go around, and even the whole church sometimes, not, I don't think that's happened here because I think we're always growing, but you see and you run into people who keep going around the mountain like the Israelites over and over and over and over and over, and they're like, I don't know why I'm always in this situation, because you're not changing. If you want to change some things in your life, you got to change some things in your life and take some personal responsibility. I'm not saying the church shouldn't be there to help you, but how much help can they give you before they're enabling you? That's a tough one. Do you see how that can cause disunity in the body? We take tithe money, we put some of it in benevolence, and we give benevolence to this person because they're in need. Something happened catastrophic, and they need help right now. We help them, and somebody over here goes, well, I had a need, and you didn't help me. Yeah, we helped you 10 times before, and you keep doing the same dumb thing, so why should we help you anymore? Well, then I'm mad at you, and you're mad at me, and then that's mad at that person because they got help, and I didn't, and it just becomes a disunified mess. Do you see how that can happen? That's what I'm talking about. When people follow the word of God, and, and Paul says here, quit stealing, that helps unity. It fosters unity in the church because we're all trying to help each other. And then when somebody has a need, we help them. But then we all go right back into helping each other. Our, our hearts should always be to give, not to take. In whatever you're talking about, finances, encouragement, joy, love, caring, kindness, any of those things, your heart should be to give that stuff away. Not just, let me see where I can find some more of that for myself. 
That's being a thief. Are you smelling what I'm stepping in today? <laughs> Spoken like a farm kid. By the way, if you refuse to work, don't put the responsibility of your own financial needs on others. Some people can't work. I understand that. Most people in the church are, wait, are, are, are so willing to help you. They want to be givers. And when the givers experience need, it, it's not stealing to receive help. I've said that so many times. I just want to make that clear. But when the takers just keep taking, there comes a point when it's just stealing from the givers. One of my favorite stories my father-in-law, Dale, used to tell on Alyssa is when she was around four or five, they were going somewhere in the car, and she just kind of threw herself back in the back seat, all disgusted, and he said, what's wrong with you? And she said, I don't have any money and I don't care to work. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't even get permission to tell that. But I love what Alyssa's dad, Dale, said to, said to her, he said, well, I really can't help you then. Because isn't that the truth? I can't help you. What a good lesson for a four- or five-year-old. I think there are biblical principles in this scripture we're talking about that are so important. The scripture says, if you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work. Again, there are people who can't do that. I understand that. We help those people. I get that. Fine. It says, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. I'm telling you, it's more blessed to give than receive. You will have so much more joy in life. You will love life a whole lot more if you find a way to give. And even those sometimes who, can't, who seemingly can't give, I see often those people giving the most sometimes. I think we have responsibilities to give givers, to be givers. And please understand my heart. There are those that have to be helped because of physical limitation, mental incapacities, even life circumstances can cause people to be in need. We should always be willing to help those with these types of needs. Again, I'm not just talking about financial. I, I uh, was in counseling with a, an individual once who had a strong back and two good hands. Health was fine. He just didn't want to work and he couldn't keep a job. I said, why can't, you keep, why can't you just keep a job? He's like, well, I don't like people telling me what to do. So I need my rent paid. I need my rent paid. I can't keep a job. And I told him a story about my Aunt Christy, who's my mom's youngest sister, who had Down syndrome, and she lived with us for the last 14 years of her life. She had two jobs. She cleaned a bank. She did some other cleaning for something else. She had two jobs. She lived in an apartment on her own. She was checked on once in a while. She, 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 she paid rent. She had Down syndrome. There's somebody who had needs, right? Special needs. And people were all too willing to help her. And I told them that story of how she had two jobs and she kept them. And I said, Who's the one who's mentally handicapped and who is the one that isn't? That's what I told him. He didn't like that. But if you have two good hands and you have a good back and you're just lazy, I'm sorry. The Bible says you don't work, you don't eat. It's just the way it is. I didn't say it. 
The Bible did. I'm just reminding you of what it says. Don't get mad at me. There should be this thing inside of us that drives us to work hard so that we can earn more for the purpose of being generous. I, I want to work hard to make more money so I can give more. That should all be a thing within us. What time is it? I've got to wrap this up, don't I? I'm sorry, I just don't buy this. I'm going to do the least I can and just scrape by. And I don't have any, as long as I'm not in debt and I'm not asking for anything, there's, I've met people like that too. I'm just going to take care of myself and that's good. You know what, I think that's being a thief because I think God calls us more than to just take care of ourselves scraping by. I think we're called to be successful and to push ahead and be prosperous so that we can be incredible givers. You have a responsibility. You carry the name of Christ. You are a Christian. How dare you be a cheapskate? God refers to those who uh, refuse to tithe as robbers. Who do they rob? They rob God. That's Old Testament, Pastor Barry. Okay, then give everything you have because that's more in line with what the New Testament says. And here's some more truth. When this church was financially struggling... For years, we literally gave our way out of debt. We continue to give our way into more and more of his blessings. And the more we give to missions, the more this place fills up. The more we give to people that are in real need, the more we see God's blessings come down. I mean, we're, we're doing things, we're paying cash. We haven't been, we've been debt-free for, what, 10 years or more? And we just keep giving more and more. It's awesome. That works for you as an individual, too, by the way. When you're a giver... You'll always have that to give. If you're always a taker, you're always going to be looking for somewhere else to get something. Two ways of living. There's one that's a lot more fun. I can tell you that right now. And since we're on the subject, I'm sorry, I'm just beating the drum here today. Since we're on the subject, if you as a Christian take things from your place of work, that's stealing. If you put a roll of toilet paper from a restaurant or a church into your purse, that's stealing. I mean, I'm telling you, during toilet paper shortage, you know, when we had that, you can't believe how much this church was going through toilet paper, and we weren't even meeting as a servant, in services. Like, who's taking the toilet paper? We're not even open. Well, I tied, so I'm owed that role. I stayed an extra five minutes at work last week. I'm owed a role. That's stealing. Oh, they won't miss it. I'm a harder worker than the other workers. I deserve this whatever it is, this pen or whatever, this pad of sticky notes. Wow. How many love Walmart and all the lack of checkers there are now? <laughs> Do you know why they did that? Number one problem for Walmart is their employees stealing from them. So they got rid of the checkers because that's where it was happening. It's truth. Self-checkout stops a lot of theft. And you, the numbers are astronomical per Walmart per year. It's in the three hundred to $400,000 per store from employee theft. Nuts. This letter's for the church, though, not for those in Walmart. Unless, <laughs> unless it's one and the same, I don't know. Could be. If you take more breaks than you should, 
You milk the time clock, that's stealing. If you don't give your best to your employer when you are working, you give them a half, a half effort, I'm telling you, that's stealing. They pay you to do your best. Not to do your least and still get by and hold on to a job. Can someone say amen to that? Because that's just, that is dang good preaching. I don't care what anybody says. Well, my boss is a jerk. I'm only going to do my half. I'm not going to try anymore. Is there any employers in here? A few? How many would just love your employees to just knock it out of the park every time they come to work and just be like, I'm all in, you know? Amen. You, know you know, there's something to this. Like, employees today, I, I'm, on, I'm on a rant. I'm sorry. Uh, there's something today that says, well, I work for them, so they owe me. When I grew up, it was, they gave me a job, so I owe them. I mean, I think back then was better, and I think it was more biblical. Amen? I, I just do. If you manipulate your elderly parents out of their money, that's stealing. I've seen it happen. Seen a lot of theft over the years, mostly indirect stealing. That's we justify it, right? And I've seen it from, from I've seen it from individuals who identify as Christians. It's easy to justify it, but that doesn't make it any less of a sin, church. And especially in reference to the body of Christ, when people steal, they take and take and take and never give. That causes disunity in the church. It stops the flow of generosity from those who that grow weary of being manipulated by those who have convinced themselves that they're entitled. Number four, I'll do this one quick. Paul says, clean up the language. He says, don't use foul or abusive language. Again, he's talking to people in the church. And foul language isn't just swearing. Foul language or an abusive language are any words spoken that push people down instead of lifting them up. Most Christians are able to stop their four-letter words and the worldly talk, and yet there are some who find this pretty difficult, and I can understand that. People have different bents towards different sins, and if you're grew up in an environment where, where those kinds of words were just always, it's hard to break that. I, I'm not shaming you today, but you need to bring that to the cross and let God start to take control of your mouth and, I, I, you know, and get around people that don't talk that way because you become like the people you hang around, right? Okay, I, I understand that there's a struggle there with some people. I get it. I, I do. And I sympathize with you. But most Christians, they're able to stop that four-letter stuff at least after a little while. And, um, you know, the, the, abuse, the abuse that and, and foul language that Paul talks about here is something that we just chalk up to swearing only sometimes as Christians. So if we don't swear, we're good on this one, right? No. The person who uses their tongue to rip people apart and belittle them, that person is using their words abusively. And they, can never, they may never even use a four-letter word, but they rip people to shreds with their venomous tongue. I know people like this. They're good at it. They can get what they want. They can even manipulate by just, I don't, I don't want to even talk about that to somebody, to that individual, because they might just shred me. How many love to get verbally abused? <laughs> kind of like the anger thing, right? The person may not even know they're doing it. You got to be careful. I know people can rattle off incense, or incense, insults like a machine gun, 
And they can argue with the best lawyers and come out on top. They win their battles with people by bullying them verbally. And it happens in the church. Paul says, let almost everything you say be good and helpful, right? Let almost everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be in be an encouragement to those who hear them. That's not what he says. He says, let everything you say, not almost everything, everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. James talks about taming the tongue. It's difficult, but the key is to be filled with the Holy Spirit before you open your mouth. Spending time with Jesus every day, reading his word will always help you with your words. You fill yourself with his word and that's what comes out. Then Paul says in Ephesians 4, 30 through 32, and I went over the four that he mentioned here. What were they? Don't lie. What's the next one? Don't be controlled by your anger. Quit lying. Clean up the language. Then he kind of does this. He says, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. This is a bit of a throwback to the scriptures we went over last week, don't live like the world. And chapter four concludes with a list of things as a reiteration kind of of what we just read. He says, so get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Get rid of it all. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, Would you just turn to your neighbor and say, you're so (laughs) tenderhearted. Some of you had to speak that in faith. (laughs) Name it and claim it. You're tenderhearted, right? Be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Just as God through Christ has forgiven you. He just reminds us of these things. And and notice the emphasis is back on one another. Don't live like this. Instead, be like this to one another. Be kind. Get rid of the bitterness, the rage, the anger, all that stuff. Unity, unity, unity. This stuff screams unity. All of this is all too important if we're going to be a church that effectively becomes the answer to Jesus' prayer, Father, make them one, even as you and I are one. It's it's absolutely essential. All right, I'm done. Let's stand and pray. (laughs) Devin, was that good preaching today? You can close us out in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the challenge uh, that you've given us today. And God, I just pray that we would walk out of here um, living that. God, looking to your word. God, striving to be um, the very best uh, version of you that we can be, God. So I pray for safety. I pray for healing. I pray for um, just your leading and guiding as we walk out of here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.